Have you heard about our latest subscription offer? Subscribe to an Irish Examiner annual subscription today and receive a free pair of OneSonic earphones valued at $79.99. Stay informed with our award-winning journalism and enjoy your favourite podcasts in premium sound. Visit irishexaminer.com forward slash earphones to subscribe now. Hurry, this offer won't last long. Terms and conditions apply. Offer available while stocks last. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. My guest today is here to talk to us about big picture politics... And, apart from that, small picture personal. Paul Hosford is, as readers of the Irish Examiner will know, this paper's political correspondent and a former Journalist of the Year. Paul's going to talk through a few of the big issues in politics this week, most particularly the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and the evolving situation with the ending of the eviction ban. But he's also going to fill us in a little on his own personal history and how it relates to the signing of that agreement back in 1998. Paul, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. How are things? Things are all right, Paul. I suppose, first of all, to touch on the big picture, as I referenced it, Good Friday Agreement anniversary. Has the government or the state in general much done in the way of planning to coincide with the anniversary at Easter weekend? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose uh, when you kind of look at the the week in that's gone by there, Patrick's week, all of the foreign trips contain something on the the Good Friday Agreement, and then across the last couple of weeks, there's been events here and there. Uh, Fianna Fáil has one in in UCD um, today, the Tuesday as we're recording, but then the big kind of centerpiece event was held there last weekend uh, at the at the Abbey Theatre. There was it was called Sharing Peace, Sharing Futures. It was a it was an event with with the Taoiseach and Roddy Doyle was there, Paul Muldoon, Clonid, Patrick Radden Keefe, many, many others. It's kind of a, an ongoing process within Ireland to to mark this. I suppose there's there's still I suppose in government circles there still is that, that acknowledgement that the the northern uh executive the northern assembly isn't up and running that so that you can't really do much in the way of kind of a big i suppose all island kind of thing but you have to mark it and you have to i suppose celebrate the the achievement of, of 25 years of what i suppose what everyone would call an imperfect but you know the longest lasting piece that there has been on the island you mentioned about the executive isn't up and running. The executive, of course, I suppose, the centrepiece in, in a lot of, well, maybe one of the main elements to the agreement. Has that dampened down the tone of any um, 
celebration? Yeah, I think it has. Um, I suppose what you want in these situations from a political point of view is you want that set piece photo or you want that set piece event where everyone can shake hands. And you can do that this year, but I suppose you're doing it under a cloud or you're doing it under protest. There was talk. I mean, there was talk a couple of months ago that the that the Joe Biden visit might not happen if the assembly wasn't up and running. And I I think the, the goal from so from a foreign affairs point of view next week with, with Joe Biden's visit will probably be to kind of you know he is going up north to kind of have that bit of pre, a bit of extra pressure that a bit of extra push to try and kind of get the the assembly up and running to mark that 25th year uh, by I suppose renewing the, the 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 commitment to peace and kind of moving moving things forward but yeah it has it definitely has um dampened the the I suppose, I suppose it, it is a reminder that the, the document is a, is a living thing, that it was uh, designed to bring about a piece and try and, I suppose, I suppose create a, a society that hadn't been done before and that you're always going to have teething problems. And you had a massive one in Brexit where... You know, this was this external shock that was not foreseen and that I suppose the document itself and the, the agreement itself will constantly run into these things and, and that they will have to be navigated. Yeah, I suppose the other side of that coin, though, is there would be a certain loss of patience with some people. I mean, as you say, bedding down and teething problems, but we are 25 years on and um, whereas it's seen as as a model of uh, agreement in terms of conflict around the world in one sense, certainly in its design and quite obviously in the fact that it brought to an end the killing that had gone on there for 25 or 30 years. But the the outcome is still sort of being tossed about. And I suppose it's fair to say, Paul, a certain amount of that is also down to demographics because whatever the DUP may say, at the back of their minds... Should they get their heads around the agreement in terms of Brexit, they still, one wonders whether they're prepared to live with the fact that now they're going to be playing second fiddle to Sinn Féin following the last election. Yeah, and look, there, there was always the kind of that, that kind of outlook about whether or not the, the DUP would be willing to vote for a, a Sinn Féin first minister. And, and I suppose that shifting place for unionism within within Ireland and if you take it for granted and I don't but if you take it as a faith complete that there will be a united Ireland at some point in the next 50 to 70 years how does how does unionism either prepare for that or, or kind of try and protect against that or how does it fit into that so there are these huge existential questions but I suppose speaking to people up in the north over the last couple of months they're happy enough to be able to have those conversations without you know I suppose without the, an ongoing paramilitary war, and 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 that's kind of where you you bought yourself breathing room to have disagreements. You can do these things. You can have cross uh, community arguments that that aren't necessarily violent, and and that's kind of the it's a very simplistic way of looking at it in, in one way, but I suppose it's it, it's kind of the the bottom line, and you can have this thick disagreement about the, the protocol or the Windsor framework. But you can do it politically, and you can you can have the discussions at the table where where I suppose where they're easier to have. Yeah, one other element just there. You said something there, Paul. You said if one believes it, it might happen in the next fifty to seventy years as a fait accompli, 
and you wouldn't necessarily go along with that. Do you think it could be that long before the island is united, to put it that way? Yeah, well, I suppose it's hard to put a time frame on it. But if you even think about it, I suppose one of the things that was raised last year, um, Sinn Féin raised the idea of having a discussion on what it might look like. And, and their argument was, and I, I thought it was perfectly reasonable, was that when Brexit was floated, it was floated as an idea that didn't have anything backing it. And when David Cameron announced the, the referendum on uh, the UK exiting the EU, there was no agreement on what Brexit actually meant. And Sinn Féin reckoned that you should have a conversation on what a United Ireland would mean before you move towards border poll. Um, I don't really see any massive appetite to do that just yet. Um, I think, you know, in the wake of Brexit, we thought this might happen very, very quickly. We're seven years on. We're probably no closer to a border poll because the, I suppose the demand isn't there. I don't think, you know, Leo Fragger has kind of said a couple of times that he doesn't think that it would necessarily pass. Um, the conversation is going to be long. It's going to be long and it's going to be nuanced. I think it could take. I think if, I think a, a border poll probably could be held. You probably could hold one in 15 to 20 years, but then, you know, or within that time frame, it could, could be sooner. But, Beyond that, then you get to a point where how do you even make it happen? How, what are the what are the legalities? What are the complexities? How do you ensure a, a real uh, party of esteem between uh, co- I suppose between communities and cultures uh, in the north? How do you integrate that? How, I mean, you know, how do you how do you convince people up the north to leave the NHS for our health system? You know, these really kind of fundamental brass tax things. What do we get against what do they get? What does it cost us? Like some people in, in Ireland will, you know, in the South will look at this as a purely economic argument. Is it worth, you know, is it worth it financially? Is it viable financially? Um, so I think that those conversations will take a long, long time. And I think you, I think you probably are looking at a, a decent time frame before it actually happens. I'd agree with you. Um, but that's very much in contrast with the, uh, well, what Sinn Féin describes as a momentum towards it, and, and certainly in terms of they appear to be in something of a hurry to bring it in. And um, I think they're giving a commitment that there will be a border poll within, what, the next five to ten years, should they come to power in the South. And um, that'll be an interesting uh, outcome then, if the, if that were to come to pass. Yeah, and I, like I, I suppose part of you, I mean, there's, there's, there's part of you that where you'd almost, you, you'd almost be well, or you'd almost kind of want to see what a border, I, I would love to see a, a proper poll done on a, a border poll today to see where we actually stand. I, I know there's different polling done, but nothing really comprehensive on both sides of the border. Because it's really, really hard to gauge. Um, it's hard to gauge how many people who support Sinn Féin, even down here, are as committed to a 32-county republic as Sinn Féin is, um, whether or not they're... So, you know, so you, you can look at Sinn Féin and say, look, they're at 30, 31 to 33% of support. Nominally, you, you would think that most people who support Fianna Fáil would support a 32-county republic. You're, you're going to take a chunk of Fianna Gael. So can we add that up and say there's probably 60 to 70% of Irish people who... But it, it's not that simple. Some people support the parties they support for... for completely different reasons. So I'd love to see some kind of actual, like definitive polling on what, where are we at on this? Um, you know, 
on both sides of the border because I, I don't think it's as cut and dry on, on in in the north either that all nationalist c- communities would vote for it right now. No, I think you're definitely right and will be very interesting to see how that works itself out. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now, you on a personal basis, you were, I think you were born in Cork to Cork parentage, as as I suppose people from Cork, as I've heard them say myself, by the grace of God, I, I, I think apparently God, yeah. is, is, is the term. <laughs> but then your family moves to Dublin at a young age and you were telling me you discovered only in your childhood at one stage that actually when your grandparents was from the north and it was something that hadn't previously been discussed and, and, and you were kind of looking at that in terms of how we talk about it down here and reflecting on, on the agreement or what have you. Yeah, so I was born in, I was born in the north side of Cork City. We're from, we're from kind of Grand Abra, uh, Nocknahini. Uh, we moved to Dublin when I was, when I was a kid. So that hence the Dublin accent, but the the Cork City fandom, um, but I was one of my 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 grandfather Jim Jim Stafford from or in my head was was from Blackpool, and I I remember vividly telling us, uh, my brother we were we kind of my, myself and my brother my brother's a couple of years older than, us, than me um, we kind of nailed our colours to the mass through sport, so we we shouted for Cork City, we shouted for Cork in the GA, that was how we kind of. I suppose hammered home that we were from Cork, even though we had Dublin accents and, and we didn't live where our, where all of our cousins lived. And I remember the the nineteen ninety four All Ireland football final. I was a bit, I was I was just coming up to the age of eight, so it was the summer before I turned eight. And I remember um, I remember Down scored a goal. I, in my head, it was very very early in the game, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, Aidan Farrell scored. And I remember the house phone ringing. Our house phone was, uh, we lived in a bungalow, so the house phone was just outside the sitting room. And I remember my mum running out to, to answer it and she was laughing. Uh, it was my granddad. And I remember saying to my brother, like, why, why is granddad up for down? And my brother was like, 
have you, he's, he's from down, he's, he's from Belfast. Have you, you never noticed that he has a completely different accent to our other granddad? Like, I mean, I don't know if I just wasn't a very smart kid, but I, you know, it was like, no, he's from Cork. He lives in, he lives in Blackpool. Like, he's, of course he's from Cork. Like, um, but it was kind of, it was one of those things where as a kid, as a kid who grew up in Dublin and grew up, so that phone call, that, that, semi-final was played just two and a half weeks before the IRA ceasefire was announced. Uh, and a couple of months later, the, the loyalist, uh, loyalist paramilitaries joined it. Um, obviously, from then on, you have you had things like, like Canary Wharf and, and you have OMA and, and you have those. Uh, I suppose you were aware of it. And I was a kid who was who watched the news. So you were aware of of what the IRA was and you didn't really understand the, the, the complexities or the nuances of the troubles and it was only as I got older um, really as I became like I became an adult um, that the North really started to make any kind of sense to me and I always thought that it was kind of strange in my own family that we had somebody who had left Belfast because of the troubles. Um, my grandfather was born, he was born uh, in the Morn Mountains. Uh, his mother was evacuated during the, during the Blitz in 1942. So he was born there and they, they moved back into Belfast. He was from Ardoin. Um, you know, I suppose we had somebody who was a perfect uh, touch pole for these things, but we just, we didn't ask because one, as you got older, you kind of, it got to the point where you didn't want to ask because you thought, look, he hasn't, he hasn't volunteered this stuff to you, um, early. But then you were kind of, you were, uh, as a kid, you didn't ask because you didn't think about it. Um, granted was from Belfast, but he, you know, he was from Cork. So when we wanted to go and see him, we would go to Cork. So it didn't, you know, it, it never became a thing. So you were, you were blessed with, and I always say, it always strikes me as, as kind of interesting because any friends that I have from the north now, you think of your childhood against their childhood, um, like the way that they normalised growing up around violence or threats of violence or having the army on the streets or, or things like that that are just were just normal against what you know and look. I grew up in Blanchardstown. We did. We had different things on our streets, but it, it wasn't the same. It, it was never the same. It wasn't in the same ballpark. And I always, thought, you know, for me, it was it was strange to kind of start grappling with this idea of like of what the what the troubles actually were against what I understood them to be. And it wasn't until you know the last couple of years of my granddad's life that I actually started having those conversations with him, talking to him about. You know why he'd left Belfast, or you know, uh, and what, the, and then, you know, my grandmother. So my my grandparents met in Cork, and they were married in 1979. So by that stage, you know, uh, like I, by that stage, my grandfather had he'd moved to England for a couple of months, uh, and then come back, and he was working as a bus driver in Belfast and got laid off, and he was a he was a toiler by by trade and. Uh, being out of work, not being able to find work, everything along that, and then the troubles on top of that convinced him to leave. And he got work in Cork. Um, a, a guy that you know knew had had moved down, and, and I always thought it was like it, it was interesting. Then my grandmother didn't go to Belfast until 1994. She hadn't been in Belfast for the first 15 years of their marriage. My aunt was their daughter was 
you know, she was what, 15 years of age at that stage or 14 years of age at that stage and, ha- and hadn't been in Belfast, you know, because she just, I suppose it, it was a world away for her. You know, you may as well have been on the, you, you know, you may as well have been on the other side of the world. And that's interesting, isn't it, Paul? Like that, even when you say it's within the family, it's it's also it reflects. And I I think a lot of people perhaps don't want to acknowledge it. Even people in my generation, I'm twenty years older, and you'd say um, there is that separateness that was always there. That it was happening up there. You could have sympathy or empathy, particularly with the nationalists, because they were the people we could relate to. But it was beyond our sort of everyday lives to a large extent, uh, unless you were directly involved. And even, as you see, even when you had family members, it still didn't touch, in some instances like yours, to that extent at all. And um, it, it's, it's just, was that, I wonder, just the way it was decided, both societally and politically, to deal with it from down here? Yeah, I I, I wonder about this a lot. Um, from my grandfather's point of view, any time I spoke to him, he was always more of the opinion that there was, um, there was less. I, I suppose that the people who had left and had come south of the border, a lot of them, in in his case, definitely wanted to leave it behind. Um, so. There was there was a huge uh, interest from his end. He obviously kept up with what was going on, and and I remember one instance, you know, when they were say my grandparents were coming because we were we're the only part of the family that's in Dublin. People would come up to us and they they'd stay for a couple of weeks in the summer or whatever. Uh, and I remember the the standoff, the Holy Cross, uh, the, the 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 school there, um, and I remember both my grandparents being very. Uh, I suppose taking a huge interest in that and being very vexed about it. And I remember my grandfather being um, like had no time for the RUC, but wasn't into like nationalist pol- politics down here in that way. But like you know, every now and then the, the the subject of the RUC would come up, and he wouldn't be he wouldn't be complimentary because he remembered you know he, he remembered his street being raided. One of his friends was was shot and killed, you know, on, on the street, you know. Those things kind of live with you. But one story that, you know, that my mom told me was, you know, there was a guy uh, from Ardoyne who lived near us in Cork. And my grandfather saw him on the street one day and, and they kind of said hello and kept walking. And my nan said to him, like, would you not, you know, would you not invite me in? Or would you like, you know, kind of once she copped who it was, she's, you know, you're hundreds, 200 miles from home. Like you're after seeing a guy, you know, would you not? invite me and a cup of tea or whatever and he was like look I don't know why he's here he doesn't know why I'm here and we won't discuss it we just we'll get on uh, and we'll kind of you try and leave as best you can that that past behind you and it, I, I suppose there were, from that point of view you completely understand it uh, these people were, were leaving, leaving behind the war and, and if you compare it with uh what's happening today with Ukrainian refugees, a lot of them will not want to talk about what they've left behind because it's too real, it's too raw, uh, it's too immediate. But then you look at uh, the Irish attitude towards the North, particularly uh, like, uh, particularly among um, people my age, I'm, I'm mid-30s now and a little bit older, it's not, it's not 
indifference, but it wasn't. I mean, my history book in, in secondary school ended in 1940, or my Irish history book ended in 1947. You know, it, it was kind of like, this is what Ireland was like during the war, and then nothing happened after. You know, so we weren't taught about the Troubles or, or you know, uh, and I think in a lot of ways the Troubles was, was painted as this very um, simple sectarian battle. You know, Catholics don't like Protestants, Protestants don't like Catholics and they just fight. And, and that's how how it's going to be or that's how it is. It's, it's about, you know, it's about religion and land. And then you realise that it's actually far more complex than that, that it was always far more complex than that and that we were kind of, you know, not even... Not even that we were sold the idea that it was, but we were allowed to believe that it was very, very simple, and that once the agreement came around in in ninety eight, that that was it. That there was a line drawn under it, and everyone moved on. And you know, the first time I went to the north, there was no, there was no border checks. There was no, uh, but you know, people I know who lived in Derry as kids completely used to the idea of going through a military checkpoint, crossing crossing the border. Going into into Lifford or, or going to Bunkran on their holidays, they they lived with that, um, and you know I had the privilege of growing up in in a very peaceful place, uh, a place that that didn't live under that. And I suppose from our point of view down here, what I'm I suppose what I've been trying to do um, through understanding where my grandfather came from and understanding how he lived his life is is trying to understand better how, I suppose, how the Troubles not happened, but how they played out in a very real way, how they affected people on a day-to-day basis, people who weren't involved in 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 the conflict, who, who didn't, you know, who, who weren't involved one way or the other, because a lot of people just wanted to get on with their lives, and um, that wasn't really an option afforded to them in, in the same way it was here, and it was... Up the road, and, that, and that's the thing that that, that you know. I, w- I was in Belfast on Sunday. It took me an hour and a half to drive from Blanchestown to Belfast. It took me an hour and a half to drive back. It was, you know, it, it's not that far away. Very true, and it's two things leap out at me there, Paul. Um, one, the the point you make about um, wanting to find out more and to understand that, and I think those kind of conversations are going to be vital if as seems likely we move towards a border poll with the ultimate outcome of uh, unifying of the island. I think we're going to have to do that. And I just wonder whether the appetite or effort is there among a lot of people, particularly in the South, to engage in that. And I think it's something that should be proactively sought out by both government and those civic society or wherever. And the other thing is, it's it's also interesting, there was a poll there last week that suggested that... uh, the history of the Troubles is, 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 to a large extent, not known by a younger generation. And, and, and some of that, and a large part of it, I'd suggest, is, uh, as you pointed out, in terms of learning history, it was never included in it. But the writing of that particular history, I think, is a very interesting thing because how exactly it will be written and whether, for example, it will be written by the victors, and in this case I would be talking about, as seems possible if not likely, Sinn Féin are moving towards being the biggest party on the island, whether history will be written according to their interpretation of it, or whether there will be a more nuanced approach. I think those issues will 
arise and they're very interesting as well. Um, just before I move on from there, one very uh, important question that arose out of what you said there, Paul, um, and that was you mentioned that you sh- you uh, you showed for Cork and the GA. Is that still the situation all these years later? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you don't. I mean, you don't. You don't give up on uh, on a team. I, I'm I'm very much of the opinion. Uh, we we have a I have a three year old son and. I'm an Aston Villa fan and his grandfather is a Manchester United fan and the day that Manchester United won the League Cup recently I said to my wife I don't want them watching that with your dad because I don't want them thinking that sport is there to be enjoyed it's there to be endured it's there to be yeah. fought through and occasionally you get a good day Speaking so. of sport uh, just in a similar vein I was very interested to hear uh, you're uh, what we might call an American footballer. You played a game and that, your experience of that, it was very much a, a, a cross-border um, endeavour. Yeah, that's what I was doing in, in Belfast on Sunday. Uh, I was playing, um, so I play uh, for a team called Dublin Rhinos. We play in the, for, it used to be the Irish American Football League. It's called American Football Ireland now, but it's a it's a 32 county organisation. 19 teams play full tackle football. There's another, I think, 10 or 15 who play uh, flag football, which would be like tag rugby. Um, and you know, I've spoken to guys who were involved in the kind of the starting days. So it started in in Ireland in in 1984. Channel Four used to show games and they used to show a highlights package on a Monday night and a lot of a group of Irish people basically got involved got interested and they started up teams and the first Shamrock Bowl as we call it that's our that's a, that'll be our national final that was held in 1984 it was a team from Craig Avon the Cowboys they still they still exist against a team from Dublin called the Celts and Guys who played in the the you know eighties nineties will tell you when they were crossing the border, you know you you were used to, or you see officers getting on or, or British military personnel getting on and, and having a look at your your helmets and pads and asking you know <laughs> what's what's with the battle gear lads you know, um completely different um completely different uh, uh I suppose landscape that they played in but then you look at. This year, you know, last year, uh, the Irish national team was able to go and, and play against Spain, and there was, you know, and is is that a thirty two county national team? It's a thir- it's it's like the rugby team. It's thirty two county national team. Not everyone on the team has to have an Irish passport. They can, ha- you know, if if they identify as British up the north, they can have that, but they can play f- for Ireland because that's the league that they play in, and it means that you remove the politics from it. You remove any kind of question of of nationality almost as such and you come together as a community and you're representing the league that you play for and, and the community that you play for um, and it's, it, I think it's really really positive you know there's a team up in up in Donegal they're, they're called Donegal slash Derry Donegal Derry Vipers uh, and they play they, they, they play and train on both sides of the border and they try and dry, bring players together from both sides of the border and that's you know even the team that we were playing on Sunday is a team called the, the NI Razorbacks they started out as a, as a PSNI kind of uh, sports and social club Um so you know, and that that kind of thing would have been you know unthinkable 25 years ago. The idea that a group of lads would go up and play an RUC team, for, you know, a group of lads from Dublin would go up and play an RUC team probably couldn't have been countenanced in in 95, 96. You know, so it's even that recent. And do, do you tug out in the full gear, the helmets, the tights, the whole thing, the the oh, yeah. as we see on the telly, yeah. Yeah, I'm just slightly less athletic, I would say. <laughs> and tell me this, when you give orders or, or make the calls, and that, do you have to do it in an American accent? 
Well, it works for us because our quarterback is American. So, um, but what, you know, when you're when you're doing it yourself, you kind of you do feel silly not doing it. it, it it's not the same, you know, getting to the line and shouting like blue thirty two in a, in, you know, hearing it coming out in a, in a Drahd accent or a Galway <laughs> accent or whatever. You want to hear it with the full yank, yanks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Effect. Has the game grown massively? Yeah, yeah. Really. Um, uh, you know, they, they, there was a time around 2000 where the league had kind of gone uh, almost on hiatus. Uh, five or six teams came back. But since then, you know, you're up to 19 teams now. Ideally, you'd get up to, you'd want it to be up maybe another two or three more because there's, there was teams in Galway and, and Waterford and, and they're, they're, uh, they're defunct at the minute. You would want to get teams to those big kind of populations because you need a lot of players to play. So it could, I, I suppose you see teams or people try and start teams in places where they're not going to drag that kind of that that number of people, and it, it can be frustrating because if you're the if you've got ten guys who are interested, because that seems like a lot of people, but if you actually need thirty or forty. You know, so you want to get back into those those big population centres. But yeah, it's, it's grown. Um, you know, the the final this year will will this, the Shamrock Bowl final this year will be in. Uh, it was in Ravenhill last year. I think it's in Ravenhill again this year. You know, the big kind of uh, big events, and and then the national team has really come on. They they were there wasn't a national program for a while, uh, and they came back a couple of years ago. Um, they've beaten Belgium, who would have been considered better than them really put it up to Spain who would be a lot I suppose a, a lot higher rated really put it up to Spain at the end of last year so uh, massive massive growth in the game in the last kind of 5-10 years One final stupid question how many people are in the team? So you've 11 on this field at any one time but ideally you'd, you wouldn't travel to a game with less than I mean, we've I've travelled with twenty, um, which means you're you're playing both sides of the ball. Uh, but ideally, you wouldn't travel with less than thirty. Uh, some teams, you know, I've seen teams go out with the full forty-seven. Uh, it's a lot of guys, a lot of names to remember. That's fantastic. Ah, well, it's just very interesting, and as you say, it's very interesting that it's an all Ireland, uh, all Ireland affair, and um, hopefully we'll have a televised sometime. We might see your, your name up there in lights, Paul. Uh, Ripping down the wing. <laughs> I would think that my days of, of, of names and lights are, are, are long gone, but there's some incredible athletes in the league these days. Anyway, Paul, it was nice to, to go on a slight diversion and odyssey around because, um, as we say, look, we are marking that weekend and you make a very good point in terms of how engaged some of us in the South really are with everything that has gone on and everything that requires to be done from here on in. But... Um, it was good going through it and enjoy your Easter and thank you Paul Hosford political correspondent with the Irish Examiner for joining us today thanks Mick I would like to thank as always our engineer JJ Vernon thank you folks for listening enjoy your Easter break and we'll be with you very soon again good luck